Ladies and gentlemen, on your behalf, it is my pleasure to introduce today's panel. It is widely agreed that innovation is a critical factor for business productivity and economic success. But despite ambitious innovation agendas, Canada is still near the bottom of its peer group, ranking 13th among 16 peer countries, according to the Conference Board of Canada. What can be done to improve our innovation uh, positioning? Two of our nation's senior executives are here to talk about actions that are needed to move Canada further up the innovation ladder. Cisco Systems Canada, a well-established communication solution leader, is accelerating the True North innovation plan. And leading the charge is Nitin Kowali, Cisco's president. Under his leadership, Cisco has consistently ranked as a top employer. This year, Cisco received the distinction of being recognized as Canada's top employer by human resource consultants Aon Hewitt. This highly accomplished executive is a public education champion and one of Canada's top innovation ambassadors. And joining Mr. Kowali in conversation is the Honourable Dr. Kevin Lynch, Vice Chair of BMO Financial Group. The Honourable Dr. Lynch, the Honourable bestowed when he was sworn in as a member of the Queen's Privy Council for Canada in 2009, Kevin's enjoyed a long and distinguished career with the Government of Canada, including Deputy Minister roles at Industry and Finance Canada, a posting in Washington as Executive Director at the International Monetary Fund, and the ultimate public service role, Clerk of the Privy Council from 2006 to 2009. Dr. Lynch is an officer of the Order of Canada. He chairs the University of Waterloo's Board of Governors and serves on seven other boards. Joining them today will be one of Canada's most respected business opinion leaders, a former all-star journalist, currently the principal at Navigator Limited, Deirdre McMurdy. Ms. McMurdy, Mr. Kowali, Dr. Lynch, welcome to the Canadian Club of Toronto. Our podium, Canada's podium of record, is now yours. Well, thank you for that, Jennifer, and good afternoon, everyone. I hope that we're able to keep this conversation fairly informal. We're going to try and leave a little bit of room at the end for some questions. I can't imagine that you don't have questions for people uh, of this caliber on the subject of innovation. And just to get things rolling, it sometimes helps just to sort of define what we're talking about. Uh, I'll toss it out. What do we mean when we're actually talking about uh, innovation? And, uh, what does it actually mean? What does it require? How do you define yeah, it? Yeah, I think innovation is one of those broad topics. So I yeah. think uh, it's always good to differentiate, differentiate invention from innovation. So you know, if you think about invention, invention is about creating a product or a service or a process for the first time. Innovation is something that you're looking at constant improvement. It, it could be the development of a new product, a new service, a new process. And I think innovation is possible by everyone. And I think that's some of the things we'll talk about. Okay. 
Dr. Lynch. <laughs> Kevin, please. The, uh... <laughs> Honorable Dr. Lynch. Honorable Kevin. <laughs> Honorable Kevin. <laughs> Kevin. I actually like the, the line someone had once, which is that kind of research is turning money into knowledge, and innovation is turning knowledge back into money. And to a certain extent, I think that's what Nitin said, which is that innovation is any time you change the characteristics of a product, a service, or how you do it with significant value back. And how you do that is important. Clayton Christensen, who's one of the gurus of innovation at Harvard, makes a nice distinction, though, between incremental innovation, which a lot of folks aspire to, and disruptive innovation. And he, he argues that part of the challenge in North America is that we're almost afraid of disruptive innovation, yet it perhaps can have the biggest impacts longer term, and we're more comfortable with incremental, and that leaves you at risk to the disruptor somewhere else. And so he argues that one of the things we need to think about a little bit more is what type of, in it, not just doing innovation, but what type. And, you know, Nitin and Cisco are good examples of thinking big in the innovation space. Right, and that sort of brings up, um, when I think of a disruptive innovation, maybe the internet. And 20 years ago, it was certainly perceived as very disruptive. A lot of companies very skeptical, not sure what to do with this thing. And you know, now it's very clear it was a great driver for all kinds of opportunity. Um, but now we're reaching another phase yeah. with the internet. And I know Cisco's been very, uh, very much a champion of something called the Internet of Everything, which I think sounds terribly disruptive. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yet, intriguing. So maybe tell us a little bit about that and, and we can sort of tease out more information yeah, about I it. I think, Dieter, you've hit on a good point here because <clears throat> It's, it's amazing how after 20 years we come back to a same cycle. Let me explain what I mean. So the Internet of Everything is really about uh, connecting people, process, data, and things to fundamentally alter business processes and industries. You know, we talk about machine to machine. We talk about the Internet of Things. But I think when you wrap uh, people, process, and data around it, so we've, we've all heard about big data. Uh, the whole idea behind all of this is how can you use um, new technologies, like sensors, real-time computing, near real-time computing, big data analytics, because uh, all of these sensors and everything that we have out there are going to create these massive amounts of data which we can glean information but knowledge from and change business processes. So how are you going to deconstruct business processes and then reconstruct them by utilizing these technologies for business benefit? And this applies to every single industry. Now why this matters for Canada is because the Internet of Everything is, is not of the future. Right? It's not the present. Some companies are already doing it. Uh, and I'll give you one example. There's a this company in Northern Ontario called Dundee Precious Metals. It's a, it's a mining company. The internet's gone where it probably never should have, which is way underground and on every single device. But they've got RFID tags on everything. So they can track people, uh, all their machinery, and just think about all the business process change they can make with that. So back to the uh, internet of everything and, and Canada's innovation and productivity curve. You look at the industries that are material to our GDP and our growth, uh, oil and gas, mining, utilities, agriculture, healthcare, uh, you know, financial service, on and on. Every industry can be impacted. And so I know that every executive in every company is thinking through what do we do around the internet of everything. And I know these are gut-wrenching decisions. So hold, we'll pause on that for a second, and let's go back 20 years when the internet first came out. There was gut-wrenching decisions back then around the internet. Now, what were those decisions 20 years ago? Mm -hmm. I know I was there talking to customers about it. Here's what those decisions were all about. Should we put our company information on the internet? Number two, should we build an intranet 
to drive productivity improvements in our company. And my God, the one that churned guts the most was, should we actually transact business on the internet? You sound pretty humorous today, right? But 20 years ago, for those of us who were in boardrooms, these were mm -hmm. the questions to jour, right? Fast forward 20 years, this is the exact same thing. We just have more technology at our disposal, more software at our disposal, but it's the exact same set of questions, but on mm -hmm. steroids moving at light speeds. So we have an opportunity as Canadians to take advantage of this transformation. And 20 years ago, companies like Cisco took advantage of this, saw their logos accelerate. We also saw companies decline and logos disappear, and more importantly, new logos come and thrive in this marketplace. Well, this is gonna happen now. So it's not an if, it's a when, and I certainly hope that Canadian companies choose their when to be quick. Right, and Kevin, you bring a very, uh really a very international perspective to the whole issue of innovation, competitiveness, competitive advantage. Overall, um, Canada hasn't always ranked that well when it comes to competitiveness. I mean, what are some of the things that we should be doing better? I mean, and Nitin's talking about the opportunity, the potential. What about the application economy and how Canadian companies can maybe do a little better, do things a little differently? What are your views sure. on that? But, but let me just, uh, uh, Jenna, yeah, let me just turn a little bit to the, the internet and things and kind of going back. I mean, Jennifer and I were involved uh, from the government side uh, in setting up SchoolNet. This would be 1997. Yeah. And it's hard to believe, but we only had five Canadian schools hooked up and almost none had computers in the schools. Mm -hmm. Today, an unwired school would be uh, unbelievable. So in a, in a very short period of time, it's not just changed the business paradigm, it's changed the educational paradigm, uh, it's going to have to change how we deliver government services as Absolutely. well and all those sorts of things. Davos this year was interesting is that Eric Schmidt of, of um, Google was making uh, the argument that in many ways we're moving to another inflection point. If the internet was kind of the first inflection point that set, off, set us off in everything we're doing now, that he thinks we're actually into another one. He uses the analogy of Watson, the computer, which actually played against two Jeopardy winners and actually won. And argued that was much more complicated than a computer uh, beating a chess master because it actually had to have adaptive learning and, and almost cognitive intelligence. So he thinks we're moving into another one now, very much on the lines, where it's gonna be, he, he used a great term, it's, it's gonna be uh, persons against machines and machines are gonna increasingly be able to do kind of white collar, more sophisticated jobs. He unfortunately gave the example of an economist, uh, which I, <laughs> so I'm glad I'm almost retired. But <laughs> so it's a very scary thing, certainly for my profession. <laughs> On the, on on the application yeah. economy front. Well, yeah. and to go back. Moving on. <laughs> Moving. <laughs> Moving on. Um, also, accountants were at risk, too, just to oh, share, right. the, um, share the disruption yeah. pain around the, uh, the room. Uh, the, you know, the problem is, you know, many of us have been talking about innovation for a period of time. I think Nitin's done more than most in terms of moving it ahead. But in essence, we're not doing any better today relative than we were before. If you look at, I'll just kind of a little bit of backtrack. If you look at the World Economic Forum competitiveness rankings, Canada just slipped to 15th place, right? We used to be 6th, 7th. You know, it's not because of our banking system, it's rated the first in the world. Not because of our debt, it's rated really highly. Mm -hmm. What is it? We're 26th in innovation. And two things have happened. One is, we've fallen. And two, the World Economic Forum and the folks that do the survey have increasingly rated 
the importance of innovation in your national competitiveness. So two things are happening at the same time, and we've actually got to worry about, well, I mean, Nitin lives in a world that if you're not innovative, right. you just don't succeed. But increasingly, that's true for all of Canada, right. not just Cisco. And I think that's the change. If you look at the other ranking, the OECD, uh, we rank 22nd in terms of spending on R&D. Not quite the same thing as innovation, mm -hmm. but it is a worry sign. And so we talk about innovation a fair bit in Canada. I'm not sure that we do as much as we should. Right, well, you're in the solutions business, I understand, Nitin. So what are some of the solutions then? I mean, uh, you know, based on what Kevin's described, we are lagging. Uh, when you are out there, which I know you are a lot, what are you hearing, seeing, feeling about Canadian companies, the way they're embracing, not embracing, the kind of opportunity that your technology can provide, well, or technology in general can? Yeah, well, I think maybe the way I'll answer that question is first, talk a little bit about how, how uh, innovation connects to productivity and why it matters to all of us. Sure. And the second part of it would be what is it possible that all of us could do and how we might look at innovation and how we might be able to enable that within our own organizations, right? So the first part is just to give you some, some data points, right? We, we can all agree innovation leads to productivity and, uh, and as Kevin was uh, rightly saying, productivity matters uh, to the standard of living of a nation, right? If you can raise the, the, a nation's productivity 1% per year, you, you double its standard of living every 72 years. I think we all agree that we have a good standard of living today. If you can take that to 3%, it goes to 24 years, and you take it to 5%, it goes to 14 years. So now you have to ask yourselves, for our kids and our grandkids, what kind of a Canada do we want to leave them, and how, how long do we want to take before we double our standard of living? It, uh, in the last 10 years or so, we've just been over 1% 1, 1 on average. That means we're going to double our... Uh, standard of living every 72 years. I don't know about you, but I, I feel that that's unacceptable, right? So we all have a role to play because, as, as Kevin said, whether you're in the, the private sector, small, mid-sized, or large business, or you're in the public sector, we all have a role to play. So then the question asks yourself, well, well, how in the world do we drive innovation, right? Do we take our best and brightest, you know, send them off into a resort in the mountains somewhere and have them come back with a binder full of innovation? Well, that's not how it works, right? Innovation comes through collaboration. And, and the best source of innovation are your employees, your customers, and your partners, the frontline folks. The frontline folks know what the problems are and know what the issues are and know how to innovate around them. So you have to ask yourself, is your organization enabling these sources of innovation? The, do you have a collaborative environment that allows person A and B and C and partner D and, and customer have to actually collaborate and come up with some of these ideas. Because if you put that of a kind of a collaboration environment in place in your ecosystem, I assure you, innovation will come and productivity will follow. Well, it sounds easier perhaps than it is though. Um, are there things that you've seen, for example, in other countries? I know you're on a board of a, of a Chinese I mean, Are there ways that other, company, that other countries are, are doing a better job of that? Or? Well, they're obviously doing a better job. Yeah, they are. But, but what are <laughs> we, not what piece they're are we there, missing? What, what they're doing. I am not trying to flog <laughs> Canada. We do a lot of things very, we very well. We do a lot of things great, but this is yeah, not one of them, and therefore we need focus on yeah. it, I think, is the key. Uh, two things. One is, I, I would argue that we have to look, at, and it was an appliance, we have to look at innovation in two regards. One is established companies. Right. And they have to um, renew their products, renew their processes, renew their markets all the time. And the standard view is that, that really innovation is problem solving. 
But if you don't know what the problem is, you don't know what in the heck you're supposed to solve. So the best identifier of problems are customers. They know what they don't point, like yeah. and what they like. And the best you know, solutions are inside the firm, they know how to do it. And I'm not sure we're as good as we could be at connecting the problem identifiers, consumers, with the problem solvers in kind of the business community. And that takes, it's not just, it doesn't just take the will, it takes extraordinary organization capacity to make sure that happens. But the other part of it, which I think we're not as good at as well, is in startups. Uh, because a startup, almost by definition, is an innovation. Right? Somebody decided they have a new idea. That is innovation. And I, I think that if you look, if you go down to Silicon Valley, if you go to Boston, if you go around Chicago, if you go to Israel, what's really remarkable is the startup culture and how good it is at creating kind of uh, young graduates who think they have an idea, that have the kind of the will, the wit, and the courage to go and start a firm. And I think we have to both have a much stronger emphasis at a startup culture and more of an innovation culture in established. And it's not the same challenge. And I think we have to work better at both. So innovation culture, Nitin. Yeah. Thoughts on that? Yeah. How do you how do you get? Can you buy it? Can you rent it? <laughs> yeah. where, where do you where, where do you get this innovation I, I, culture? I think uh, the culture aspect is very important. Yeah. I think everybody. If you talk to most large organizations, they'll tell you they're focused on productivity and innovation. Right? They are. They, they really are. Uh, and most most executives will tell you it's a, it's a top priority. But they don't have a systemic um, process inside the company to actually drive it. They'll tell you it's important. They want to do it. But there is no way to, to actually drive it because you can't get your finger on it, right? And, and the reason you can't get your finger on it because it's actually a lot more simpler than you think. I mean, Kevin laid it out very, very nicely. So do you create an environment where your employees are engaged, that you, ha you can actually drive change management correctly? Could you imagine if you were able to create an organization where when your employees came to work, whether it's physically or virtually, that when next time they had an idea for your company, they knew what, where to take it, what to do with it, and that, that it would be tracked and it would be fed back. And if the idea had merit, because not all, all ideas have merit. I get lots of them. They don't, they're not always have merit. Some are non-workable. But if they have merit, then it should be implemented. And if you continue to do this on a regular basis, have an expectation that your career be accelerated. Mm -hmm. If you created that kind of a culture and environment, you're going to have switched on employees that, that run every day. And that's what we try to create at Cisco. But then if you create that environment and then add that collaborative so, scenario in place, mm -hmm. then, then you have a winner. So notice I never mentioned technology, right? But you're going to now. This is no. no? This, is, well, this, is not a techno this is not a technology problem. No. He did, right? actually. Yeah. <laughs> it was very technology. elegant. That was elegant. Yeah. <laughs> it was a great segue. <laughs> it's not a technology issue. Technology yeah. is always going to be there. It is a business process change and management courage issue wrapped around culture. Yeah. And that takes leadership. And metrics are important? Uh, well, well, the metrics. I mean, you sort of just you, you looked have, at that. Yeah, but yeah. You, but you, yeah, you have to metricize everything. I mean, you, have, you do. Yeah. OK. Here, I'm going to ask a really Canadian question, and I'm going to send it to you first. And that is, is there a role for government? Is there a leadership role? Is there some sort of policy uh, function or something that government has done, should do, could do? Well, I mean, sure. but I. And I'll come to that. But I don't think the fault is government. I think no, there's a huge not, role no, for government. I think our is, failure yeah. is as much a corporate failure as it is. Mm -hmm. I mean, government, you know, government doesn't 
build new products and it doesn't no. uh, it actually creates the environment, environment. for them and yes. i think it's done a pretty good yeah. job frankly okay. we've got quite a generous you know tax credit system we've got a low corporate tax anyways government has done federally provincially a lot of the things business said so we've almost got to go back to why isn't it happening mm -hmm. let me do uh, sheldon levy's here you know i think on the startup side a lot of it is how do we create a milieu where entrepreneurship is really pushed right so the uh, DMZ at kind of at Ryerson, um, at Waterloo Communitech. I mean, what what both those are trying to do is it's it's both the environment of the federal government, it's the community environment, it's the incubator. How do you bring business people like Nitin in to actually mm -hmm. be mentors? How do you bring angel investors in? How do you bring the expertise in this, and actually support kids uh, to start firms with new ideas and kind of get them going? Because that's going to be our next generation of mid-sized firms. We had the president of Technion University over to to give a chat. Technion is is the high tech area. Somebody asked him the question, you know, what do your graduates do? Um, university of about 26,000. He said that 43% of his graduating class be in engineering school science. Um, they take their first job in a startup, and that's their preferred first job. Ran the numbers for Ontario. There's not a university in Ontario where 5% of the graduating class would actually work in a startup. So there's a gap there somewhere, and I think part of it is culture. It's not just tax rates, it's culture, isn't it? And we've got to worry about the culture in established firms, but we've got to worry about the culture in how we think about starting firms, too. Well, you mentioned Ontario, and I know you've got a partnership with the government of Ontario. Yeah. Cisco's a big multinational corporation. You could invest with partners pretty much anywhere in the world. Why did you choose this partner, this, this yeah. province? Maybe tell us a little bit about that and the dynamic that's sure. driving it. Well, you're right. It's a, it's a multinational. Um, yeah. You know, and as someone who runs a whole whole sub of a multinational, you're competing all the time yeah. with resources, and uh, they can go anywhere. And of course, you know, in the last ten years, India, China, uh, maybe Vietnam, maybe even Poland, there's a lot of places that that are up up and coming and are vying for these things. But I think, uh, as Kevin said, you know, governments are doing right things, and hey, we're doing a lot of right things. We should be proud of some of the things that we're doing in Ontario. If you look at uh, tax structures, uh, you look at corporate tax, you look at the R&D tax credits, you look at a government that actually wants to, to, to have high paying, the right kind of jobs for the future, you look at our immigration policies compared to the United States, you look at uh, engineering schools and, and, uh, and uh, technology schools, how many of the top ones in, in the world outside the United States are within, you know, two hour driving distance from here, right? So all of these things come into, into play and also, Canada has a rich tradition of technology innovation, right? This is the land of Nortel and RIM and a whole bunch of other companies. We know the talent that is here and we know the talent's being produced. So our team did a spectacular job in building this multi-year business case that showed why Canada and why Ontario. And you know, this started off with uh, Mr. McGinty's government and, and followed on with uh, Kathleen Wynne. But you know, they, they saw an opportunity to partner with a company like Cisco to, uh, to create this environment. And I know it was popular in some places, not popular in other places, but at the end of the day, I think this is part of a, a government's uh, role is to drive economic development. And I think this was one of those win-win scenarios for everybody. Okay. I'm gonna open the floor up a little bit. I have a lot more questions for you, but I wanna be as inclusive as possible. Does anyone have a question that they'd like to, to put forward at this point? We're covering all the right topics? All right, you can go back to dessert. Oh, oh. yes. 
Welcome you to the South Core as you move into the offices. Um, you know, it's it's interesting that uh, Cisco has talked a lot about being able to collaborate remotely using technology, and but there is something to be said about place and the importance of place and face-to-face -face and innovation. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and you know maybe expand sure. on your thoughts. So I, I think it's very important when we talk about a collaboration, remote working. I mean, we empower everybody with with home offices. And you're right, you know, that, you gotta make sure you don't take the pendulum from here all the way to over here. Because there's a few things you cannot transmit through video and collaborative tools and things like, things like culture, right? Things like uh, um, being able to, to communicate, making sure people have the right kind of EQ rather than just the IQ. But the beauty about Cisco is we do the right mix of both, whether you can work remotely and you can work in the office. And we design our offices, especially the new offices we're gonna go into in the South Core, um, are gonna be designed that way. And what's, what's important is people have to understand when you work this way, which is the way of the future, and you look at, you know, I've, I've got a couple of gen, what do they call them, Zs now? What, after 94, what, whatever it is. I think it's uh, double letters now. Double, uh, could we, we're gonna get into double letters soon, right? But, uh, but they work differently, right? And, and you have to create a working environment that works for the multi-generational workforce. We, what we do at Cisco is uh, we empower everybody with these collaboration tools, and people say, well, how do you manage that kind of environment? Well, surprisingly, it becomes quite self-managing because to do my work, if I need something from Kevin, and Kevin needs it from Deidre, and Deidre needs something from, from Paul, and one of us falls down in that loop because the deadline we've got to give to Ange over here, let me tell you, it's a self-correcting loop very, very quickly, right? It, it, no one has to monitor it, and I think, I think that's the magic, is to build your business processes around these things so you manage both the remote and the in-person because you need the in-person piece. Mm -hmm and have the business process that help drive that. I hope that answers your question. Well, we have, yeah, I was gonna say you are involved with Waterloo yeah. and we hear a lot about technology sure, but, hubs. But, but let me go back to this one again. I, yeah. I'll go back to my culture point, but I think one of our biggest problems in Canada is complacency. That, you know, we understand the importance of innovation, but we're not necessarily doing it. And even if we're doing it, the issue is relativity, not absolute. Is, are, is a competitor doing it faster than us? And I think there's a risk. I'll give you two examples. One is General Electric does a really interesting global innovation survey. And so they have a large cadre of business executives, and they ask them to rank. They've got a list of 15, 20 countries. And they ask them to rank how, com how innovative they think that country is. They then actually go to a subsample in the countries mm -hmm. and ask them what they are. The country that stands out with the biggest gap between kind of the... Uh, internal view of innovation and an external view is Canada. 23 percentage, it's 23 percentage points gap between Canadian views of how innovative we are at the business level and what our global peers think of us. That's actually a word, no other country was more than five percentage points apart. Deloitte has done an interesting study as well and came up with about 33% of Canadian business people think that they're actually above average spenders and innovators, and they're actually below average. So in a sense, um, people get it, but they don't but quite they don't. get the well, right Everyone <laughs> thinks they're a good driver, right? That's right. <laughs> so I, I think partially is, I think to a little bit is, this is I think what Nitin's yeah. getting at, is you gotta start by self-realization. You've got a benchmark, and you gotta know where you stand, and you can't you know, have varnished truth. And I'm not sure in corporate Canada, we're benchmarking ourselves against. My, my sense has always been that in every single sector, 
we have an innovator, a company, that's as good as anybody in the world. The problem is the average is actually less than the average elsewhere. In other words, we somehow maintain more of a gap between the best, and we produce the best in the world, and the average. And in that gap is a big cost in our standard of living and competitiveness. Do you want to follow up on that at all, Nick? Well, yeah, no, I, I think it's bang on. And back to the, some of the statistics you said, I mean, I think we're ranked 19th in the world uh, in using information and communication technology for, for business benefit. That's the bottom of the G20, you know, and uh, a lot of the ICT innovations in the world came from Canada. So, so I think, and back to the other point of where uh, uh, most companies feel that they're using the right amounts of technology to drive the business, but they're not. So I think there is a mismatch. The other piece that I would add is one of the sectors that's really important to us, and I know Kevin speaks often about it, is our mid-market. Right? The mid-market is a big part of our GDP. It's a big part of our job, job creation right? uh, going forward. And if we don't get that sector going to the it's a startup, but it's also the follow-up. Then, it, then we're going to be we're going to really be in trouble because the big companies they're focused on it. Ultimately, I think they'll get there, but the mid-market has to move from an innovation so product. So, how do you do that? I mean, do you need different tactics for a really large corporate client or a really large corporate entity than you do with the mid-market? I mean, we talked a little bit about startups well, and I, what that dynamic is. But yeah, well, what I, about the mid-market? Yeah, I know Kevin has a lot of views on it, so I'll start it off and tee it up for him. <laughs> <laughs> but. Uh, but, you know, uh, we did get complacent, right? We, we enjoyed a low dollar for a very, very long time. And if your biggest market is the United States, uh, you inherently had a tremendous cost advantage. So basically make and ship, right? So the innovation and productivity kind of went by the, by the wayside. Now that we're in a much more competitive environment, we find ourselves behind. And so there's many ways uh, to do this, but self-realization is the first way on over there. Kevin, no, I, I, about that. Yeah. Well, I agree with it. I, I think, you know, at a 70 cent dollar, it's pretty hard not to sell your good or service into the U.S. So why spend money on innovation? Why take the risk? Why kind of turn the management team upside down, get them all excited and nervous about this new thing? So we didn't do it for a long period of time. And with a dollar kind of back, you know, somewhere between 90 and, uh, and parity, uh, we're not nearly as competitive. So we're now reaping the costs of a decade or more of underinvestment in ICT and R&D and training, all these sort of things. And frankly, this is the complacency point, we're going to have to catch up faster. Uh, we now actually have to go at twice the speed to, to catch that up. The other one, as I go back to this, is I still don't think we benchmark ourselves as aggressively against the best. You know, who is the best in each sector? What does it mean for me as a business person, mid-market, small, large, in that sector? And I think we can do a lot more in terms of using almost information-driven competitiveness in Canada to change behavior. And is it too granular to sort of go into some of the sectors where there is untapped potential to improve? I think there's untapped in every sector. In every sector, yeah. so there's no... Yeah, you could definitely stack rank it, but there's potential in every sector, for sure. Yeah. Okay. Are there any other questions from the audience? Gentleman back here. Um, Ashley Ryan, Institute for Competitiveness and Prosperity. Oh, sorry, you're not a gentleman. But Hello. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Um, we're preparing a bunch of uh, comprehensive research on innovation that's going to be coming out in our annual report in November. So I encourage you all to take a look at it when it comes out. Um, I'm curious what your thoughts are on the role for higher education institutions in the innovation culture. Um, Canada, we've found, actually performs really, really well on higher education R&D. 
about 30% of our R&D is actually performed by universities and colleges, which is really different from um, the states and most other places. Businesses do most of the load in, in other countries. So Canada does really well for universities and colleges, but not so well by businesses. And I'm curious how you see that interplay and whether we can improve on it. Sure, no, you're right. I mean, but partially this is the gap between the public sector and the private sector. We rank in the top five in the world for public sector spending per capita on research and development, and that's governments uh, investing in our universities, and we've been doing that federally and provincially for the last 15 odd years, and that's good. That's not innovation, that's research. Our challenge a little bit is we're not great at actually taking that research, that intellectual property, out of our universities and into the marketplace. So we have a commercialization challenge in Canada. I don't think we have a research challenge in Canada. We have a problem in taking that out. And you take it out in two ways. You, you actually commercialize it where you license it, uh, find a consortium and do it. And the other one is you do it through your professors and your mm -hmm. students, and that's my startup point. And in both of those, we do fewer startups than our competitors elsewhere, even though we do more research and we actually have less commercialization per capita than our main competitors. So again, it's not that we don't have the foundation, but we're not using that foundation mm -hmm. the way we should, and it's using it that creates the wealth, that creates the virtuous circle so we can reinvest back into our universities, our colleges, and what have you. So everybody loses. As Nitin said, we lose in terms of our standard of living, what we can pay, public services we can uh, get taxes on, and so kind of creating this virtuous circle of public funding research into the business community and then back is something that I think we ignore at our peril. Yeah, I, th I think Kevin's uh, spot on here. I, uh, the universities do a good job. When you go across the country, we see great research. And we're actually trying to build a, a different business model to maybe show the, show the marketplace. Our team, again, has done a fantastic job. We, we've done 10 research chairs in the last little while, but, but concentrated back to our internet of everything. Things like a research chair in, in, in uh, Smart Grid at Waterloo or research chair in mining at the University of Saskatchewan. And what we're trying to do is, is take that research hopefully have an innovation center around it mm -hmm. that could provide spin-offs, tie it back to our business units to see if Cisco can get benefit. And that's sort of the beginning of trying to try research to commercialization. And, and we, I hope more companies do this, because Kevin's right, we have to tie the public sector and the private, private sector for commercialization. Okay, we have a question back here. Thank you. Uh, my name is uh, Ahmed Badrudin. I run a data and analytics startup in the water industry based in Toronto. I had a couple of questions for Nitin, if that's okay. Uh, first off, uh, in this post-Internet of Things world where we're generating more data than we can really wrap our heads around, how do you think the questions around data ownership and data management are going to be answered? And secondly, you talked about how some of the questions we're asking around Internet and Internet of Things have been similar as we did 20 years ago, but are there differences as well? Like, is there something new and different about Internet of Things? So first of all, uh, uh, when I started talking about the Internet of Everything, I talked about people, process, data, and things. Data is absolutely crucial to this because all the technology we embed into these processes is going to create unbelievable amounts of data. And the ability in real time or near real time to turn that into useful information to impact the process is going to be crucial. So who's going to do it? Hopefully companies like yours and a whole bunch of others, right? That's the idea be behind it. And you see a lot of... Uh, Startups are on big data analytics, companies like Cisco and all the other major companies. Everyone's focused on this because we know that the, the future is all about generating uh, tons and tons of data on every single business process, right? 
Uh, the second part around the, the differences. The management decision making, there is zero difference. It's about business process change, and it's about management courage. And if you don't have a leadership team that understands that, your logo will decline, 100% guaranteed. You just have to go back 20 years, and you can map this out. The difference is really, from a technology perspective, is that we have a lot more at our disposal. Right? We've, you know, sensors are going to be like barcodes. They're going to be on everything. Right? Uh, we have compute power that's just, you know, it's a fraction of the cost that it was 20 years ago. We have bandwidth that's massive. We have devices that are connected everywhere. But that's just technology, right? It's still about changing that business process and having the courage to do it. So yes, it's a little bit different, but it's a lot the same. Could I, it's interesting. Is, you know, anytime you actually have an innovation that generates huge potential, it also creates risk. And so in the big data world that allows you to do all these things, um, have a privacy um, breach and suddenly your brand is dead. Or have a cybersecurity problem, which is slightly different, you could be at great risk. And so, you know, it's an interesting one is that part of, part of succeeding is doing all the things Denton said, but also protecting against kind of a loss of privacy uh, and a loss of cybersecurity. And, you know, being Canadian, I think we want to be particularly uh, keen on protecting privacy. And I think if we do it well, it can be a competitive advantage for us. I think we have the potential yeah. for being a brand that worries about, you know, individual uh, data privacy at the same time, very efficient use of big data. Okay. Well, unfortunately, we are out of time for any further. I can't imagine what you have to do this afternoon that would be more interesting than listening to Kevin and Nitin, but go ahead. Um, thank you very much for your attention. Thank you to both of you for a really stimulating uh, conversation about innovation. Nitin, Kevin, thank you very much. Good afternoon, everyone. It's, uh, my name is Danny Asaf, as uh, Jen previously introduced me. Proud to be board member and president-elect of the uh, Canadian Club of Canada. And it's my pleasure to thank all of you for attending and to thank our guests and our uh, speakers, distinguished speakers, on behalf of the Canadian Club for their ideas, their leadership, and inspiration on how we can collectively work together to strengthen and develop this very important aspect of our economy as we look into the 21st century. And to get an idea, uh, Nitin spoke about some metrics internally at Cisco and get an idea of what's at stake for us as Canadians, we take a look at a study. I just pulled out a couple of statistics that the European Patent Office used the companies that use IP as a proxy for innovation and their impact on the economy. And they determined that 39% of economic activity comes from these companies. 26% of jobs, and something we can all uh, appreciate, these companies paid on average 40% higher in wages. So that's what we see the future, and we are encouraged by the leadership that we saw today by uh, Nitin Kowali and his leadership at Cisco, both in terms of his ideas, his energy, and also his deeds with Cisco in working with the government of Ontario, one example, putting their money where their mouth is, $150 million to encourage investment in innovation in Ontario. In addition, it's a privilege to have the Honorable Dr. Kevin Lynch here. 
and all that he has done over the course of his career, and now at one of our most prestigious and global financial institutions, and I know the work that he has done on behalf of his institution around the world, and on behalf of all of us as Canadians, to continue to promote what we have abroad and to bring his ideas and leadership back to Canada. And in addition, it's a pleasure, Deidre McMurdry, to have you here today to navigate these, this great discussion and to take us through these very important issues so that today, often we see that we are educated when we come to these events, but today, as was referred to earlier, we truly feel enabled. We feel that we have the tools to all go back to our organizations and help promote what this discussion has set a platform for and to take this great economy into the new century at the top of those league tables. Thank you very much. I would uh, like to echo Danny's message and thank Deirdre and Nitin and Kevin for the insightful discussion today. Thank you for joining us. Our sincere thanks once again to today's event sponsor, Cisco, for making this event possible. Before I adjourn today's meeting, I'd like to draw your attention to the event survey card on each of your tables. The Canadian Club is always looking for ways to improve your experience here, so please take a minute to help us by sharing your thoughts and comments, including whether you like our new shortened luncheon format. We would very much appreciate your feedback. So this concludes our program today. Please visit the Canadian Club website to download a webcast and podcast of today's events. And again, to learn more about the club and our upcoming events, please visit us at www.canadianclub.org. Thanks for joining us today. Our meeting is now adjourned. Enjoy the weekend.